0: Well, as we've already mentioned, we're launching this new series today called Generations. For about the next six weeks or so, we're going to be in this series. Something that is so unique and remarkable about the church is that it is one of the only entities that exists where its members include people all the way from birth to death. In fact, I'd like to just do a little exercise this morning and have the different generations represented in our church stand up for a moment. If you were part of the silent generation, which means you were born between 1928 and 1945, and if there's anyone here born before 1928, I apologize for not recognizing you, but you could stand along with the silent generation. But if you were born between 1928 And 1945, would you please stand? Thank you, we are grateful for your wisdom and for your presence. Now, I know that these generational uh, divisions are always kind of a little bit, you know, what am I saying, maybe arbitrary in some ways, because we might feel that we belong maybe to one or the other, especially if we're right on the border. Uh, So if you are part of the next generation, which is baby boomers, which is 1946, and maybe some of you who stood first feel like you're part of that, but 1946 to 1964, would you please stand? Thank you, we appreciate your presence and wisdom as well. All right, the next generation is the one that my older sister is in, Generation X. Uh, It is if you were born from 1965 to 1980. If you were born between 1965 to 1980, would you please stand? All right, these are the Gen Xers. We appreciate your presence and wisdom as well. And then the next generation is my generation, although I'm a little bit of an old millennial. But if you were born from 1981 to 1996, would you please stand? (laughs) Yeah, Mark, we are in the same generation. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you, millennials. We appreciate your presence and wisdom. All right. Now, Gen Z is the next generation, which is 1997 to 2000. If you were born between 1997 and 2012, would you please stand? Awesome. And we got some over here on the side, too, and some in the, in the balcony. We appreciate your presence and wisdom also. I didn't realize this, but I have one child who is a Generation Z and one child who is Generation Alpha, because if you are born 2013 to the present, and you may need some help from mom and dad, but if, could you please stand? You are Generation Alpha. We have, Sedem is in the middle of the aisle way. That's awesome. Okay, we've got a few. Some in the back. Isn't it beautiful to see all the different generations that make up the church family? Isn't that cool? Isn't it cool to be part of a church that has so many different generations present? But you know what is often the challenge is that we can be in the same room, sit in the same pew, even sit right next to somebody from a different generation and not have much of a relationship with them. There is a big difference between being a multi-generational church and an intergenerational church. An intergenerational church is one that intentionally seeks to have mutual and meaningful relationships and to do ministry alongside others of different generations in the body of Christ. And it is not always easy to do that because it's comfortable to relate to those in our own generation, right? It's easier to relate to those that kind of are in a similar you know time of life as you they have similar life goals priorities that grew up liking generally the same kind of music and and movies use the same terminology as I mentioned you know I'm a little bit of an older millennial so maybe to Pastor Mark it doesn't feel like we're in the same generation <laughs> even though we are but I definitely working with Mark and Danielle and, and Joseph who are a little younger than I am you know, sometimes feel like maybe I'm not always relating in a way that is relevant to them. I don't even want to begin to think about how Ken feels with all of us, but but we appreciate it. <laughs> that wasn't in the notes. That just came. We love you, Ken. He uh, he is our voice of wisdom often in our staff meetings. But I just wanted to give an example of a recent, this happens to me all the time, but the, maybe one of the most recent times in which I found it was hard to relate to those of a different generation. We were trying to discover a theme song for our uh, series. And we were looking and looking, it's kind of hard to find a song that kind of fits in with a generation's theme and you know the body of Christ. And I finally found one that I thought would work, Build Your Church, which is what we're gonna sing at the end of the message today. And so I texted, Pastor Joseph and Pastor Mark, the link on YouTube to build your church. And Pastor Mark writes back, fire song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I thought that meant there is another song out there called fire <laughs> that he was recommending that I go look up that he didn't like the suggestion that I made. So I start going on YouTube looking for a song called fire, <laughs> you know, because it makes sense, like, um, the Holy Spirit, fire. Maybe there was a song out there about, you know, being the body of Christ filled with the spirit. And, and I couldn't find one, so I texted back and, and I finally understood. They were saying, no, that's a cool song. That song is fire. Yes, let's do that one. So it's not always easy, right, to be intergenerational, to relate to those that are at a different age than us. But I believe we are called to do that as the body of Christ. And we especially need to be more intentional doing that with those in younger generations. I know this is probably nothing new, this is old news, but the unfortunate reality facing Christian churches across denominational lines is that they are getting older. And talking about our own Seventh day Adventist denomination. According to a study by the Center of Creative Ministry, this was commissioned by the NAD, this is only North American statistics, the median age of a Seventh-day Adventist in North America back in 2018 was 61 years of age. They also did a study in 2008, 10 years before that, in the Seventh-day Adventist church in the NAD, the median age was 51 years of age, so it has jumped 10 years in 10 years. Obviously, one of the highest priorities we need to have as a church is to be more intentional about having meaningful and mutual relationships with those in younger generations. One of the things our pastoral staff and a small group of our church members here at Calamesa are doing to move us in this direction, and it was from the initiative of Pastor Joseph, and it's under his leadership, we have joined, uh, in the Southeastern California Conference, the Growing Young Cohort. It's a cohort that several churches in our conference are a part of. We meet for a period of over two years, and we get together um, sometimes about once a month or every six weeks or so. We have different coaching times, and we're really uh, looking at the research and the principles, studying that and trying to implement those that are in Um, this book called Growing Young, which Fuller Youth Institute put out a few years back. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. The book contains extensive research that is very helpful in understanding why churches are aging. It's really kind of a unique study, uh, more um, study than anyone has really done before, and it shares helpful principles on how we can grow younger. But the book also makes sure to highlight that the older generations in a congregation are also valuable and vital. In fact, the authors of the book that researched 363 churches, that was part of their research for creating this book, that had vibrant youth and young adult ministries, most of those churches had a strong presence of adults and seniors that had meaningful and mutual relationships with those youth and young adults. In addition, when they would interview Those adults and seniors that had those meaningful relationships with the younger generations, they reported how much their own spiritual lives had been enriched and strengthened because of those connections. So most of the churches that were growing young had a congregational uh, model that was intergenerational. All generations in mutual relationship with each other and benefiting from it. So our church has joined this cohort. We are doing this series because we are making, being an intergenerational church, one of the core values here at Calamesa, And it already is a value that we, that we hold high, but maybe it's not as core as it could be. In fact, it was beautiful to see this morning, uh, if you were here to watch the solar eclipse, it wasn't just kids and their parents out there. There were people from all ages out there. And it was such a beautiful intergenerational uh, experience, but that is a core value we want here at Calamesa Church. When I read Scripture, I see God calling both young and old to do good and great things for His kingdom. When I read about the New Testament church, I see all kinds of diversity, but not just about gifts or gender or ethnicity, but age as well. I see mentoring relationships, people of different ages working alongside together in ministry. I like what Philip Yancey says in this article he wrote a few years back in Christianity Today. I think I have it on the screen for you. He said, diversity complicates rather than simplifies life. Perhaps for this reason, we tend to surround ourselves with people of similar age, economic class and opinion. But church offers a place where infants and grandparents, unemployed and executives, immigrants and blue blue bloods can come together. Just yesterday, I sat sandwiched between an elderly man hooked up to a puffing oxygen tank and a breastfeeding baby who grunted loudly and contentedly throughout the sermon. Where else can we find that mixture? When I walk into a new church, the more its members resemble each other and resemble me, the more uncomfortable I feel. I mean, I want to be a part of a church that gets uncomfortable when we mostly see people that resemble us. I want to be part of a church where God is building it intergenerationally. And so today, to start moving more towards that goal, we focus on the importance of the youngest generation in our church. And to begin that, I want to show you first a quick video. Um, Moose Tracks, it's like chocolate and like Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Um, either Huckleberry or my uncle makes really good ice cream. Huckleberry, that's awesome. What is in Huckleberry? Huckleberry. (laughs) Vanilla. Vanilla, do you like any toppings on that? Like sprinkles or like So I really like strawberries with it. It's just really good. Cotton candy. Um banana, and chocolate and, and strawberry. Alright, and what is your favorite chocolate. Oh <laughs> <laughs> Let me finish it and then you can say it. Okay. What is your favorite flavor chocolate. of? What is your, favorite? <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite, favorite ice cream? Ice cream. Oh, chocolate. I didn't know. I didn't know what huckleberries were. We'll cut that part out. What does the look like? Play with my dogs. Gymnastics. I hang out with my cousins. Um uh, we go to the beach sometimes and make bracelets together. I like reading and swimming. I can use that. We my God! go, we go. Uh art like Mm -hmm. I like drawing fictional stuff. What does that mean? Uh, I mean, uh, don't care, but don't, and uh, uh, shout. You have to earn stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, when you want to get a game, you have to, like, get good grades or something to earn. <laughs> well, I learned probably many years ago, but to believe in Jesus, because it helps a lot with some things that can be happening. I think it means that like when you follow him, he can like help you with a lot of stuff. And I've read the Bible a lot and he's really good. (laughs) You worship Jesus and go to church if you can. Um, uh, Be happy. To follow Christ and listen to His commandments and do what He says. To love and believe in Him, not just to be kind, but to actually have faith. Well, you will always have faith that He will help you no matter what. I think that's really cool. If Cala could have anything, okay? What would you want it to have? Um, A baby <laughs> Um, Bring meat to the potlucks. I really like when they um, involve, like, the kids. It's a lot of fun helping out. I hope for more people to come to this church so that they can believe in Jesus and so they can learn about Him. I would like for, like, Sabbath school just, like, staying to, like, stay into, like, longer. So that the kids could like, learn more? Um, for them to care for each other more and be more helpful. Those incredible answers. Hmm. You know, you learn this as a parent pretty quickly that often your kids teach you more than you teach them. And I think that is true in the church as well. You know, something I have often heard said about kids in the church, and I think I've even said it myself, we even say it, I think, sometimes about youth and young adults, but I think we especially say it about kids. They are the future of the church. And I know we mean well by that. You know, I I know that we have good intentions when we say that, but I think we need to stop saying that and instead say they are the church. Because there are so many things that they can teach us. I mean, did you hear those definitions of what it means to follow Jesus? Did you hear those dreams for the church? There is so much we can learn. When we have mutual relationships with our kids, Jesus seemed to think so. We turn to a passage today where Jesus shares something very important that our children can teach us, among many other things. Open with me to Matthew, chapter 18, starting in verse one, Matthew 18, starting in verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So the disciples come to Jesus with this question about who will be greatest. They Who's going to have the best status, privilege, position in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, unless you become like one of these children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting to note that the context surrounding this question that you find when you go into the other uh, synoptic gospels, when you look at uh, this story told in Mark and Luke, uh, the uh, context that surrounds this question is, Pretty interesting. You discover that the disciples were actually arguing and ruminating on who would be the greatest as they were traveling through Galilee en route to Capernaum. In fact, after they arrived, Jesus asks them, if you go back to Mark's account, what have you all been arguing about? No doubt Jesus knew, but he maybe wants them to fess up about it. And in Mark's account, it says, they keep quiet. They say nothing. Maybe they are embarrassed to let Jesus know they've been talking about such a thing. But the point is that they have been ruminating on this on the journey. But what is more shocking to me is that they were ruminating on this during that journey after Jesus had told them he was going to suffer many things and be killed. They had just been told by their teacher, their master, their friend, their leader, that he is going to die and yet, they spend the trip arguing and ruminating on who will be the greatest in the kingdom. One of my favorite authors, as she's commenting on this part of scripture, she says this, now the cross was just before him and his own disciples were so filled with self-seeking, the very principle of Satan's kingdom, that they could not enter into sympathy with their Lord, or even understand him as he spoke of his humiliation for them. Can you believe how blinded these disciples were by their self-seeking? So much so that they couldn't even focus on Jesus and his mission. Well, are we much different sometimes? Do we sometimes get caught up on focusing on our own agenda, our own wants, our own status that we maybe stop focusing on Jesus and his mission? I think one of the biggest barriers to being not just a healthy intergenerational church, but just a healthy church, period, is entitlement. Our needs come first. Our agenda is the highest on the list. Our preference is prioritized. And Jesus would respond to such self-seeking by saying, unless you change and become like this child, you won't have any status in my kingdom. So now our question is, well, what is it, Jesus, about a child that you're trying to teach us, that we are to learn from? Is it a child's honesty, their joy, their innocence, their trust, their kindness? All great qualities that kids show sometimes and are to be desired that we could learn from. But I think the context that we've already discussed gives us a hint at maybe what Jesus wants us specifically to learn from children in this passage. And then when we combine that with what we know about the status of children in the day and age that Jesus lived in, I think it becomes a no-brainer what the lesson for us today is. In fact, I'd like to read to you a few words from pastor and author Gary Thomas. He says this, in the first century, children enjoyed little esteem and virtually no respect. While families appreciated their own children, society merely tolerated them. The very language of the day reveals this first century prejudice. One Greek word for uh, child is pisor or uh, padeon, which can also mean servant or slave. Yet another, nepios, carries connotations of inexperience, foolishness and helplessness. Greek philosophers regularly chided a stupid or foolish man by calling him a nepios. Indeed, even biblical writers admonished Christians to stop thinking like children. Imagine then the people's astonishment when Jesus brings a troublesome, noisy child and places him in front of the crowd with his hand on the lad's shoulder. Jesus has the audacity to suggest that this small tyke provides an example to be followed. That would have been the image that people had of kids in those days. Who will obtain the greatest status in the kingdom, the disciples ask. Jesus responds by bringing before them someone who in his day had no status. You want to be part of my kingdom, Jesus says. Let go of your concern for position, your interest in status. I should note that position and status are not always bad. Of course, when you fly on an airplane, you expect that plane to be flown by someone who has got the status of a pilot, right? In fact, whenever I walk through those doors to get on board of an airplane, I feel even more at ease when I see on the collar four stripes instead of just three. If you're sick and you go to the hospital for care, you probably don't want to be treated by Brother James, but Dr. James, right? If you're paying high tuition for your advanced degree, you probably want someone teaching you that's got a few letters after their name, who's written some articles or books on the topic, who has years of experience and expertise on the subject. Standing and status position are not always bad in our world, I know that. But in the kingdom of God, there is no hierarchy, no letters needed after our names, no special titles or rank, and the only stripes that matter are the ones that Jesus endured for our healing a little further along that part of the desire of ages that we quoted earlier ellen white goes on to say this again jesus explained to the disciples that his kingdom is not characterized by earthly dignity and display at the feet of jesus all these distinctions are forgotten the rich and the poor the learned and the ignorant meet together With no thought of caste or worldly preeminence, all meet as blood bought souls, alike dependent upon one who has redeemed them to God. The sincere, contrite soul is precious in the sight of God. He places his own signet upon men, not by their rank, not by their wealth, not by their intellectual greatness, but by their oneness with Christ. The Lord of glory is satisfied with those who are meek and lowly in heart. Maybe the biggest barrier to being a better intergenerational church is entitlement, but I think the biggest thing that helps us to do it better is to be meek and lowly in heart. Maybe if we could boil all this down to what Jesus wants us to learn from children today, from this passage at least, I think it would be that one word, that final word that Charlotte spun in her web to describe Wilbur. Since this is a sermon featuring kids, I thought it might be fitting to end the message with an illustration from that classic story, Charlotte's Web. You may be familiar with it. In case you're not, Charlotte and Wilbur are the main characters of the story. They live in this barn with all the other animals, and Wilbur is this pig who is so full of life, and he's so smart. But as he starts to live a little bit, he figures out that come the end of the season, he is going to be on the table, if you know what I mean. So his life is now filled with worry and anxiety about what's going to happen to him. And his good friend Charlotte tries to help him out. She begins to weave with her web words to describe the character of Wilbur in hopes that the farmer and the family and the whole community will see that Wilbur is worth keeping alive. She starts with words like terrific and wonderful, kind, and the words have some impact, some effect. It starts to get the community buzzing and the family rethinking about who this pig is. But then the county fair comes, and he gets entered into it, and Wilbur becomes concerned that if he doesn't win first prize, he's going to be dead meat. So Charlotte spins her last word about Wilbur in hopes that it will change his fate. And that last word, do you remember it? Anybody? Humble. And Wilbur is touched by this word. But as he ponders that last word, he says, I I don't know, Charlotte. I mean, is that a good word? She says, what do you mean, is it a good word? Well, I mean, is it true? I don't feel like I deserve that. You don't feel like you deserve that? No, I don't, Wilbur says. Then, Charlotte concludes, then it's exactly the right word. That's The characteristic, that's the quality of the person that enters the kingdom of God. And I think our children constantly remind us of that, to be humble. In fact, I'd say if you spend any time seeking to have a meaningful and mutual relationship with anyone from a different generation than your own, it will keep you humble, but especially when you have that relationship with kids. So, my appeal to you today, family, is simply this. Are you willing to be taught by a child? Are you willing to see them as the church now and follow their example? I hope so, because as Jesus said, the kingdom of God belongs to such as Lord, we are your church. Every one of us, from the youngest to the oldest and in between, but Lord, it is your church, and it is built on the chief cornerstone of Jesus Christ. May that be who we are as we move forward together. In Jesus' name, amen.